Welcome to this edition of Toby Haddock's Who's Round, which took place over an espresso martini for the interviewee in a Brighton wine bar. Beats getting killed in a cellar. Well, the wind is whipping up in Brighton, but uh, convened at short notice, uh, somebody who's been on my list for a long time, and the way that these things happen is always coincidence and chance, but I'm delighted to be talking to a gentleman who I'm going to ask to introduce himself and tell me why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, hello, I'm Stephen Churchett, and Toby's talking to me about Doctor Who because in 1985 I was in the episode called Attack of the Cybermen. You were indeed, and you were actually attacked by the Cybermen. I was attacked by the Cyberman and actually turned into a Cyberman. Um, yes, it was an interesting little sequence, not melodramatic at all. <laughs> I was one of two workmen in the London sewers, and the episode opened with us uh, wandering through the London sewers with a map and a torch and being rather puzzled that one particular wall didn't match the map. And... Um, the, the puzzlement had to uh, increase as, as I said, no, no, we are in the right place. And then I turned around and as, it's, as this is a sound recording, it won't be any point, but I'll try and demonstrate by the power of words. I held my, both my hands up in front of my face as I turned around and confronted an unseen horror and screamed something like this. <laughs> At which point um, they then, uh, in the edit, sort of saturated, oversaturated the screen with bright colours, and um, I was indeed being zapped by a Cyberman. And then there was a scene later on, in which I think I'm hardly visible, where I'm, there are lots of people who have been turned into Cybermen, sort of plugged into a wall, and I think my, uh, my head had already been turned into one. Um, so, well, I did wonder about that, because... There's something to, it's a classic Doctor Who thing of, you know, you find the menace and you get killed by yes. it. That's, uh, but um, one of the advantages of those sorts of, sorts of things is that if you get killed, you get an episode fee, but you don't have to hang around. But you did have to hang around because they, they bung you in the scene getting half cybernized. Indeed. I mean, it is 30 years ago, so my memories are a little hazy, but I think, I think I've had quite a heavy night the day before being a cyberman. I also had a cold sore on my lip, I seem to remember, and horrible greeny sort of makeup and it was um, that second day was rather unpleasant um, who else was in that Brian Glover was in that mm-hmm. I remember that very well and I think they had a rat but they cut the rat because there was a in the sewer I think uh-huh. they got a, a stunt rat in to run around our feet but for some reason maybe it got nervous I don't know I think oh, it was no, cut I wonder if rats are too realistic for Dr. Who thank, thank you very much so the, so the rat didn't make it. I did try and track the rat down for this podcast, but he was having none of it. He was probably too expensive. <laughs> Animals are always more expensive than actors. So you, um, Matthew Robinson, the director, do you remember him? I do very well indeed remember Matthew Robinson because about three or four years ago, Matthew was one of the two directors on the long-forgotten daytime soap opera for Southern Television called Together, which I played one of the two first gay characters in a British soap opera. It was, uh, the, we were a couple called Trev and Pete, and I was Pete, and we lived in a housing association block of flats, which had the advantage for soap opera of having a communal lounge where all the residents could get together. 
the second series of that, bizarrely, was actually broadcast live. Um, and live television, had, by them, was a thing of the past, but they decided they'd save money on the edit by broadcasting it live. And so we go down to Southampton, we'd rehearse for four days, and then on Thursday and Friday at, I think it was 1.30, the announcer would say in, in the studio to make a virtue of it, and now live from Southern Television together. And then was kind of 27 minutes of utter panic as you actually transmitted live. I'd never heard. So when was this? What sort of year was This would have been around 1980, 81, I think. My goodness. And it was... And the, 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 the memorable thing about it was they used to make a virtue of it being live by announcing that fact. And as if to prove it, they would put in topical references from the day's news into the dialogue. So you could have been rehearsing a scene for three days when you're going... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm leaving you and I, I'm taking the kids, darling. And suddenly you'll be given the line, so on transmission it will be, I'm sorry, I'm leaving you and I'm taking the kids, darling. Oh, have you seen that about gas prices going up again? <laughs> it was the strangest, uh, strangest thing. Uh, with some rather wonderful people in it, like Kathleen Byron, if anyone remembers, oh, Black Narcissus. Narcissus, my goodness. And uh, Raymond Francis, Inspector Lockhart. Lots of veterans in it, um, with a few youngers, like, like, well, then youngers, like me. Well, Raymond Francis would have known a thing or two about live TV, of course. Indeed, yes. But these, the people, the actors of that age, thought they'd left the horrors behind them. They go, God, no, we're doing live TV again. I thought we'd left that behind us. But it was, was it, and it was southern, surely not southern area only broadcast as well? No, it was, it was networked. It was networked. Yeah. But Matthew, yeah, was one of the two um, directors on that. Seems like quite a dynamic director from what I've never met him, but he seems from interviews and stuff that he's quite a. Yes, yes, no, he is, and he had a, he did a, I think when I because I did East, I, as you may or may not know, I've done EastEnders for twenty six years on and off with a ten year gap, and I've come back in the last couple of years. And Matthew was producing that as well for uh, a while. Yeah. Well, yes, that was I was going to lead to that. We might get to that shortly. Um, no, let's go there now. Let's be organic because. I'm intrigued by the fact that you have this brilliant role in EastEnders of Marcus Christie, Phil Shady, Lloyd... Well, not, not Phil's anymore. Phil hates Marcus now. Ah, well, I was going to ask, ah. because I haven't seen EastEnders... I stopped watching around you, and I have to say, one of the two... Dirty Den came back and stitched you up. And, uh, yes. and I thought, oh, is that the last we Because you'd always come in and out. That's what I thought was my last one. I went off with... I'd conned... Oh, it's hard to remember now. I'd conned somebody, Sam, I think, out of lots of cash mm. that she'd sold the Vic for and then I went to the airport and it was revealed that I was handing over the money to Dirty Den in uh, while he gave me a big envelope and nobody's worked out what was in the envelope some sort of blackmail and then I was out for ten years and I thought that's the end of Marcus and then last year I had a call to go back for half a dozen episodes and I said oh yes and then this year I was back on a big for about three months during the summer doing a big courtroom storyline Marcus has somehow been transformed into a barrister or at least a solicitor advocate so I could appear in court and do my whole Kavanaugh QC, QC routine which I think must be lovely because I have to say I, I like the verisimilitude when a long running show has characters that, that 
pop in that you go, oh yeah, well they were in it, but not as a regular. You know, when I watched it then, and they've actually gone to the attention of to de- of detail of using the same actor. I'm great for you because it frees you up to do other oh, it's, stuff. No, it's a it's a nice, it's a very very nice gig. It was particularly nice last year because I don't do social media, but somebody sent me a link saying there were people after ten years. Is it the same actor playing Marcus? He looks younger. Oh, I thought well, nice. that's good. Very because I I always wondered because I'm sure. Because you had a moustache, and then I, I seem to recall there was one point you did it when you got a goatee, and I, I thought, had a beard, I yes. think, is he doing Shakespeare somewhere else? And he said, say, well, I'll do it, but I've got this beard for a play, you know. No, I think I've kept it on from a play I have been doing, I think, <laughs> up in somewhere, in rep somewhere, yeah. So I guess when you got it, there's no way you would know that you, you got it as a one-off gig and they just kept Oh, um, indeed, no. I, I was originally went in for, I think it was two episodes, as this rather sort of shy, inefficient, bumbling solicitor. Um, and then the next year it was probably four episodes and it went on. I mean, by the end, because my writing career had taken off, it was a bit much. So I was doing a lot of episodes and at the same time writing probably two television scripts. So it did get a bit heavy. And in a way, I was quite pleased that I was um, out of it. Um, but equally, I was very pleased to go back into it this last couple of years. And, uh, well, the executive producer has said to me, oh, you know, Social media, they're going, the legendary Marcus is back. And he said, you'll be back, you'll be back. So let's hope I am back. Excellent. Because Doctor Who obviously falls in, a, in, in the middle of a very busy... Uh, well, let's go back to the beginning. What made, you, what made you want to act and how did you go about it? Um, I think I probably always wanted to act. And then uh, I, th- my, I suppose really my parents said, oh, no, 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 go to university, get a degree. So I did something which then in 1900 and frozen to death was quite unusual. I went and did drama at university at Manchester. And um, I'm getting a little signal here from Toby that he was at Manchester University. We'll probably talk about this off recording. My parents said don't, my mum said don't uh, do a thing, go to university and do... do Did you go to Manchester? Yeah. Well, we'll we'll have that chat after (laughs) the recording. But no, so I went to Manchester University and I left and... Those were the days when there was a you know a huge amount of rep theatres around the country. So I went and became what's called an acting ASM, which meant basically I went out and borrowed props for productions from the local shops and did you know small parts. And that's how I started. Um, and then it was yeah. And then eventually television. Um, but I didn't start writing until much later. Although I did write one episode of The Bill in the eighties when it was quite easy for actors to say, "Hey, I've got an idea." But I didn't start writing properly until I was about 50. And uh, I, I wrote a stage play called Tom and Clem, set at the Potsdam Conference in 1945, um, in the middle of a landslide Labour victory. Um, and it was 1997 at the time of Blair, and we all thought, oh, Blair is a bit like Attlee. How <laughs> wrong we were, how wrong we were. And um, that went on in the West End with Michael Gambon and Alec McCown and got some attention. I wrote another play which didn't get much attention and then I was asked um, by really by the legendary Ted Childs producer of uh, The Sweeney and he did everything for John Thor he said why why don't you come and write Kavanagh QC and I said but I've never written a real television script so I'll go on give it a go and I did and then he said oh well, go on do another one John likes that those were the days when you know you didn't have to answer to endless endless executives and didn't get notes from 79 people and their dog um, uh, not that I'm sounding bitter. No, not at all. Um, but yeah, so that was how my writing career really kicked off in television. Um, late, late in my life. But you've, you've um, 
I think you slightly undersold it. Your first play went to the West End and had Michael Gambon and Alec McCann. It, Most people's well, first plays don't go straight to the West End. Well, it is a, it's a nice story, actually, and it says it's never too late to start. I didn't even have an agent at the time. I wrote the play. I had some friends, obviously actors, around to read it, and I thought, hmm, I think this is quite good. And, and I happened to bump into an agent who represented my friend, the late Kevin Elliott, and I said, it was, you know, I had a play in a grubby envelope, really, and said, would you read my play, Gav? And he said, oh, yeah, took it away. And then he phoned up the next day, virtually, and said, oh, let's have a meeting, at which I was very excited, because I'd never had a meeting before with a literary agent. And he said, had you thought about where this might go? And I said, well, I, you know, maybe there'll be an adventurous small theatre or rep that might take it on. He said, oh, I think I'm going to send to Michael Codron, who at that time was the sort of doyen of West End commercial producers. And I laughed, and he said, no, no, I'll send it to Michael. And then within a week, I was sitting opposite Michael Codron's desk in the Orwich. And um, at that time, I still smoked, and I saw an ashtray. And I said, oh, very nervous. He said, would you, would you mind if I smoke? And Michael said, Stephen. I thought, oh, God, he's going to give me... A... And he said, let's have a cigar. And, well, I hate cigars, but you have to. And um, he sat there with a big notepad saying, well, I, I want to produce this. And he said, had you thought about who might play Tom Dryberg? And I said, well, not really, and because I was still kind of giggling inside at the silliness of it, that it might just happen. And he said, he, he said, uh, what about Ian McKellen? And I found myself going, no. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I know what you mean. And he scrubbed the name out. And it got sillier, really. Then he said, Michael Gamble. I said, yes, yes, yes. And uh, Alec McCown, he said, directing. And, I, and uh, Richard Wilson, he suggested who I knew anyway. Um, so yeah, it all happened then. It went straight on in, into the West End. So that was it was a great start, great yeah. start. Yeah. And and you had you had you written for pleasure? I mean, I, I, prior to that, had you had you written with yeah, no I'll, end game? Oh yeah, I, I'd written lots of things that I just put in the drawer and thought these I can't show them to anyone. They're no good. And apart from this one episode, the Bill, which was probably seven years previously. Um, but yeah, I had lots of stuff. I think like a lot of people who start writing and you just hide it away, or I did. And uh, and then you followed it up with the, the play that Tim Pickett-Smith and... Um, yes, Tim Pickett-Smith and George, George Cole, which was done at Hampstead, which wasn't as well-received, really, but fair enough. I don't think it was as, as, as interesting or as good. And it was then that I, really, that year, 1998, that I was asked to write for Kavanagh, you see, and um, so I wrote then quite a lot for John Thor, because he, he liked what I did. And I did a couple of Kavanaugh's. I have a Kavanaugh special. I did one of a series called Monsignor Renard, which um, didn't get a second series, sadly, which I think it was a rather underrated series. And then um, I, was t- I was asked to do a lot of the new Miss Marple, the new generation. Well, I did the last uh, Inspector Morse, yeah, well, of course. Was that was say, a big let's thing. Not, let's not skip, let's the not biggest skip television that. Of it, which uh, was an extraordinary, because I think it got, I don't know how many, you know, millions it got, but it was, you know, it was the lead item on both BBC and ITV News tonight as the last ever Inspector Morse. No, that was a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. Well, I, mean, I, found that, I mean, you sort of explained it because you say John Thor liked what you yeah. did, because you weren't part of the Morse furniture. You'd not been no, any absolutely other episodes not. Morse, absolutely not. given the last that, one. That was Ted Childs, really, who was, you know, the, the producer, who, who sent me the book as soon as it came out. Um, I remember going and uh, sent this hard... Uh, Hard, not hard copy, what do I mean? Hardback. Um, came to the post with a note from Ted Charles saying, um, yeah, what do you think? And I went down onto the beach at Brighton on a nice summer's day and I sat there and read it. 
And um, I said, well, yes, how can I not do this? And uh, no, it was great. It's probably my one claim to fame is, is writing that. And it's, um, no, it's just wonderful. And, and obviously working with John Thor was incredible because he was one of those actors who you could always wrote less for. You'd do a draft and you'd have a line. You'd go, oh, hang on. John can do that with a look on I, you know, oh, let's just cut the dialogue. Um, so it was great. And then I, fr- from that, I then went off and kicked off Lewis, of course, yeah. two, or three, two or three years later. Um, yeah, you did the original. Yeah, I did the first, last Morse, oh. first Lewis, and, yeah. and then did a lot of other Lewises until quite recently when it, it changed its nature, really, and um, became something different. So I didn't have anything, I didn't have anything to do with Lewis for the last couple of years, really. And then it was on to things like Mar- Marple. I did a lot of Marple for Geraldine McEwen and then um, Julian McKenzie. And but where, where I noticed you, because you, you, you did a Joan Hicks and Marple. As an actor. As an actor. I did. But you have done your research, well, haven't you? You give me your time. I at least <laughs> should know it. Well, that's, some of it I don't have to research. Some of it, sadly, is oh. just the way my brain is wired. But, um, but you, it's one way you're acting and you're um, writing Dovetail, because you're, you're the coroner in the... Uh, in the, the modern Miss Marples. In the Marples, they always ask me to be... If there was a coroner, they always ask me to be the coroner, even in ones I hadn't written. So I'm obviously... I'm the only coroner in the whole of Marpleshire. I'm a peripatetic coroner. And the other reason they got me to do it was because I'm cheap, compared, <laughs> compared with all the other actors they get. <laughs> so the nice thing about the coroner is you get to meet everyone, apart from the person who's dead. <laughs> so you do get to meet all these very famous... Um, Actors and I'm quite. I'm still in awe of the fact that I'm working with. You know, they were people. Famous people are saying my words. I still get excited about that. So on one of the marbles, um, David Warner, who you know I saw doing Hamlet. You know, one of the great Hamlets of his generation. You know, we had the read through, and then I got a phone call at home with a rather echoey David Warner saying, um, "Oh, I just wondered, Stephen, could I could I just change this and to a but?" on the page 13 and I'm going I said you're echoing he said oh I'm in my bath I'm in my bath and I thought David Warner is calling me from his bath to ask permission to change an and to a but you know it can't get better than that well thinking about um, that last episode of Morse uh, the, the the burden of how do you kill uh, a, a, a much loved character I mean, was that something that you you worked through with Thor himself and the producer? No, no, not with never, never, never directly with John. No, it was always, always with the producer, and obviously the script editor and so on. I mean, as far as I remember, in the book, he more dies quite a lingering uh, death. He's in hospital for a long time, but obviously one needed something more dramatic for television. Um, but no, the, the the one of the greatest pleasures was choosing the music really for that, so that when he has his heart attack in the quad. Had the um, in paradisum from Foray's Requiem, so I have strong memories of you know sitting endlessly playing that at home and just thinking how that would look and the music and what, one of the great things about um, the Morse franchise, as it were, Endeavour, which I um, really think is terrific. Uh, when Morse, the young Morse, first arrives in Oxford in Endeavour, they actually play the in paradisum and that's yes, one for the aficionados, really. Yes, um, it's a nice piece of. Yes, yeah. it is. So, do you? Well, you mentioned uh, because obviously that's the sort of thing that D- Doctor Who has quite heavily is references to things that people can't. It does, doesn't know it? Yes, the, the that's right. Me. That's right. So, do you understand the appeal of, of Doctor Who? I understand it 
I understand it objectively, but it doesn't. I don't watch it unless my good friend Toby Whithouse has written one. I hasten to add, in case he ever ever listens to this, I always watch one of Toby's episodes. Uh, but no, it's not. It's not. It's not my thing. I admire it. I admire the work that goes into it, and I admire the storytelling, and I admire the fact that it has such a huge, huge following. But it's not, not my bag. He said, "Man." Well, and of course, the, the way that it was made when you were in it is very different from the oh, way yes. that it is made now. And a lot of this podcast has been spent with people who, who maybe worked in television in those days and don't now. Right. Whereas you cross the divide, there's a lot of lamenting goes on. Is is television as it is made now, we as actors decry, you know, the lack of rehearsal at the Acton Hilton yeah. and all of yeah. that. Yeah. Is that rose-tinted spectacles or do you think television was, that way of making television was better or worse? Well, I don't think it was better. I think there's an element of rose-tinted spectacles, but... No, I miss, I do sometimes miss scenes that, you know, last longer than 45 seconds. And if you watch some of the... I slightly lament the absence of studio-based drama. There was a lot of good studio-based drama. Um, you know, even, you know, I, Claudius, you could, yes, there are wobbly sets, but you can actually have wonderful, wonderful scenes that really get into people's hearts... But they do. You have to. What you know. You have to watch for three and a half minutes, and it, it is. A, you know. Obviously, all change. Every television director wanted to make films, when film became easier to make on television. All those things. So I don't necessarily think it's better. I think it's different. But then, if you watch something like um, Breaking Bad or or Better Call Saul, you, you they're going back really to the idea of having scenes that, that are often reliant on dialogue and often can stretch out for what seems in modern terms quite a long time uh, which, which, I, which, I, which I think is great I love that Well and what about some of the telly that you did do when it was made in the way that it used to be made was your first was your first telly was it up, was it up Pompeii was that the first one you did You have done your research my first part on television was indeed Up Pompeii, which, if anybody doesn't know, was a rather wonderful sitcom with the late, great Frankie Howard. Oh, no. And I had the smallest speaking part. It must be the smallest speaking part ever on television. It wasn't a speech. It wasn't a line. It wasn't a word. It was a single letter. So there were five Roman soldiers lined up for inspection by the sergeant major who comes along and says, Centurions, from the left, number. So obviously the gag is, I, 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 V, V. <laughs> and I was V. That was my single word. And I got paid, I always remember this, at my first telly, I got paid 28 guineas. They still paid in guineas. And of course, Frankie was IV. What do you mean, IV? Oh no, don't call me IV. Uh, so, yeah, that was my very, very first <laughs> television. You, you seem to attract female directors, because Moira Armstrong... Oh, the great, Moira, the, the great Moira Armstrong. Now, she's one of that generation of fantastic uh, television directors. She did the wonderful, wonderful thing about the suffragettes, um, the name I... Yeah. Shoulder to Shoulder... Yeah. Yes, I've forgotten that. I've forgotten that. Play for today. Well, yeah. yes, so, I did a couple of plays for today. Yes, one to, with Ian Ian Holm called Jubilee. I seem to remember. Yeah, 
and he's an amazing, he's an incredible actor. Yes, he is. Wonderful, wonderful man. Wonderful man. Um, and um, so, but obviously, doing a telly with somebody is different to doing a, a play like Arturoui with um, with Tell Me the Story You Told Me before we um, before we started recording about Rossiter on stage. Because well, there are a couple of things I remember about Arturoui, which was a you know, as a play by Bertolt Brecht, which is a sense about Chicago gangsters, but is really about the rise of, of Hitler, um, and. Uh, there's a famous scene in it where Arturo, the, the Hitler character, goes to see an old ham actor for lessons in oratory. And it's a, it's, a, it's a frightening scene because he starts off mumbling and he's doing Friends, Romans, Countrymen. And then suddenly this, the Hitler character gets the whole gestures and he turns into Hitler, you know, being a demagogue, being kind of Nuremberg rally type of performance and it's the only time I've ever seen virtually everyone else in the cast every night would just come down into the wings and watch Rossiter's brilliance it was the most it was the most wonderful wonderful scene and Rossiter was brilliant he got a quick silver mind very impatient very impatient with anyone who got things wrong or I remember one night there was he was doing one of his big speeches <laughs> sitting on this pile of of boxes and there was some electricians sitting around in the corner and, and he just stopped in the middle of the speech and he went off stage and gave these electricians a real f***ing <laughs> and then came on and continued his speech without a hiccup. It's extraordinary. Amazing. Well, and in the scene, I mean, there's so many sort of bits of television. Well, let's talk about House of Elliot because that was a big regular stint. And I have to say, I hate it when I read... Um, little potted is your little articles by um, mainstream papers will say oh you might not know him as an actor but this playwright who's got to play at the West End you go actually if you write about television you should know him as an actor <laughs> I, and I it seems to be that it's only the acting profession in television that the people who write about it have sort of have a licence not to know about you wouldn't get a, a, a cookery writer going well, there's this thing called an aubergine, but I've never heard of it. <laughs> um, but they can do it with actors for some reason. Oh, yes. I, 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 but um, so House of Elliot, a good regular stint, yes. two series period drama. Yes, yes the, House of, the House of Idiots, as, as it became. <laughs> as Well, it was merc- mercilessly sent up by French and Saunders, who they used to hover around the studio. We'd, we'd come out of studio recording, because this was done in the old-fashioned way. We'd go off and film in Bristol for two or three weeks for, for all the location stuff and then we'd be in the studio in television centre and in the studio in television centre we'd sometimes come out of the studio about 10 o'clock at night having finished and there would be uh, Jennifer and Dawn hanging around and we'd go oh hello and they'd go oh we were just up in the in the viewing gallery watching oh it's lovely and then suddenly on came this wonderful parody called The House of Idiots which was superb absolutely superb with uh, Dawn playing Louise Lombard and all sorts of things going on uh, it's slightly responsible for me getting a much bigger um, storyline, really, in the, in the next series, because I was parodied in, in the parody by an actor called Arthur Cox, who was, who was fabulous. And um, all he had to do, he'd just come in and say, uh, Miss Elliot, and Jennifer would say, that'll be all, thank you, Joseph. That was my <laughs> character's name, and I would go out, which was kind of what I, what I was like in the, in the first series I did. But then in the next one, I actually got some decent storylines, so I think I owe a lot, really, to, um, to Dawn and um, Jennifer. And lovely Arthur Cox, who is one of the few actors who's been in old Doctor Who and new Doctor Who. Really? Well, yes. there we are. You see, you tell me things I didn't know. <laughs> I often see him on the Piccadilly line. Uh-huh. Um, uh, 
and that was where you met Toby Whithouse, who facilitated uh, it was. this. It so was. Toby, who played Norman, who married Tilly in the House of Elliot. And he became a good friend of mine, and he now lives in Brighton too. And he became a writer and is much, much more successful than me. And I don't hate him for it at all. <laughs> well, are you, are you uh, uh, an actor who writes, a writer who acts, or is it, is it, is it, is it pretty much even Stevens? No, I'm a, I'm a writer who acts. I'm a writer who acts. I mean, really, virtually all the acting I do nowadays is, is, is EastEnders. And then I'll go off and, no, I'll go off and do odd things in uh, television. But I'm much less concerned about the size of the part now. You know, whereas before, in the old days, if, when I was just an actor, I'd go, oh, oh, I don't know, three lines, one scene, oh, I don't think so, not good. Now I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. It's a day out, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's a day out. Well, what are some of the... Because I've been... I've sort of led this. I've been prescriptive about... What are some of the, the, the parts, I guess, particularly on television? What, what, what are some of the acting jobs that we haven't talked about? that stick in mind for, I don't know, because you thought you did a good job or because you enjoyed the job or because you worked with particular people who were memorable? Um, I enjoyed doing... I, I was in a sitcom called The Britass Empire on and off as a semi-regular. I enjoyed that because it was just mad and the people were great fun. Um, what have I done recently I've really enjoyed? Actually, I, I did an interesting drama doc at the beginning of the year about the 1945 election and Churchill in which I played Churchill's physician, Lord Moran. That was a very good and interesting project. Um, yeah, I've done all bits of things, the Lord Lucan thing a couple of years ago. I did a, um, quite a nice little part in that. Um, but writing really is the main thing. Um, and do you have any... Um any unfit, so say we were to reconvene for a, an espresso martini in ten years' time. Yes. What would you have liked to have done between between uh, now and then? Um, I would have liked to have got off the ground um, a project that I'm for the first time I'm co-writing with someone, and we haven't yet got we far off being green lit. But this is a friend of mine called Phil Clymer, and we are writing something together which we think is absolutely brilliant. We haven't quite decided exactly what form it should take, but we are convinced that this is going to be a huge, huge hit. And um, I would like that to happen. Well, one thing, um, <clears throat> House of Elliot was often directed by Graham Harper, who's directed his fair share of Doctor Who. Indeed. Um, lovely Graham Harper, who's done a couple of... Uh, he might have even done EastEnders, I'm not sure about the yeah. he, he certainly did, um, I did an episode of Heartbeat years ago, which Graham directed. I was, seemed to remember, I had a lot of sheep in my garden, I seem to remember, I had to, and it was raining, that's all I remember about that. Um, but yeah, no, Graham, fantastic. And the late Ken Hannam, the Australian Oh, director. Ken Hannam was just wonderful. I mean, a really, really terrific director, yeah, and a sad loss, actually. Well, look, I've, uh, I've exceeded the half an hour I said I would do, which I always do, and people are very patient, so I just have the two final questions. Uh, the first is, uh, what, you haven't got paid for this, been paid for this, uh, nor have I, and the listeners aren't paying. If you're paying listeners, you're doing something wrong, but we ask you to donate to a charity of uh, the choice of the interviewee. So what's your charity of choice? Well, my charity is the Psoriasis Association. Um, and really, I suppose, in, in memory of the wonderful Dennis Potter. Well, uh, I'll take that. And the, uh, the final question, which I asked as a whim on the very first one of these, and because I have that Do Doctor Who 
autistic gene. I had to ask it for everyone, is that this podcast was convened to celebrate then 50, now 52 years of Doctor Who. Goodness. In fact, it started as we talk, um, 52 years ago in three days' time, because uh, it's the 52nd anniversary of Doctor Who on Monday. Um, it started the day after John F. Kennedy's assassination. Uh, so what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there who are still watching it even now? Come out from behind that sofa. That's marvellous. I'm so pleased that we got this one done uh, and for, for um, making time in your schedule at very short notice. Stephen Churchill, thank you very much. My absolute pleasure. That was great. I hope that was all right oh, for you. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. It was perfect. Perfect. I love it. I, I, that's exactly... Real thanks to Stephen and to Toby Whithouse for putting us in touch. And Stephen uh, suggested the Psoriasis Association, which is psoriasis, which I'll spell for you, because uh, it's almost as tricky as spelling my surname. Uh, P-S-O-R-I-A-S-I-S, psoriasis-association.org.uk, psoriasis-association.org.uk. That's the... An actual dash, not the word dash. Psoriasis, P-S-O-R-I-A-S-I-S dash association dot org dot UK. Uh, my thanks for you t- for listening and to Ian Atkins who puts these out for Big Finish, especially as increasingly at the minute he's doing them at something like the very last minute because I've been very slow with the edits because I'm appearing in Manchester in uh, one of a series of plays called JB Shorts which uh, take place between the 1st and the 12th of November. So if you would like to come along, it's JB Shorts at uh, 53.2 in Manchester between the 1st and 12th of November. Um, That would be very nice. And I think there's a couple of people from Doctor Who in some of the other plays, so um, (laughs) they don't know that when we're in the dressing room they might get cornered. But that's for another time. Until then, ta-ta! I need to speak to Torchwood. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Stage one, your head's not your own. Stage one, stage one of what? More reports trickling in, same general pattern. People just stopping what they're doing and entering a fugue state. We're all in danger. Why? Can't you see? Sir, put down the knife. This is unbelievable. The traffic's gone mad and so have half the people. What the hell is going on? Between you and me, I think you're about to have a bit of a time of it. Convoy 4 to control, ETA to Cardiff, 20 minutes. They're building a cordon around the city. They can't do that. Convoys 1, 3 and 8 already in position. Roadblocks assembled. I've got to tear it out! Somebody get in here now! Big Finish. We love stories. For now, it's recommended that you follow the advice of the official police statement. Stay at home and stay safe.